were traveling together. At one point, they came to a river with a strong current. As the monks were preparing to cross the river, they saw a very young and beautiful woman also attempting to cross. The young woman asked if they could help her cross to the other side. The two monks glanced at one another because they had taken vows not to even touch a woman. Then, without a word, the older monk picked up the woman and carried her across the river, placed her gently on the other side, and they both carried, carried on their journey. The younger monk couldn't believe what had just happened. After rejoining his companion, he was speechless, and an hour passed without a word between them. Two more hours passed, and then three, and then finally the younger monk couldn't contain himself any longer and blurted out, as monks, we're not permitted a woman. How could you then carry that woman on your shoulders? The older monk looked at him and replied, Brother, I set her down on the other side of the river. Why are you still carrying her in your mind? And that is the crux of this section of scripture that Jesus is addressing here in the Sermon on the Mount. That adultery and sexual immorality begins in the heart and the mind when we carry those thoughts in the heart and in the mind. Let me assure you, I'm going to really try hard to keep this PG. But there are some unavoidable things that we need to address. Therefore, this is not a behavioral issue that Jesus is addressing. It's a heart issue that no matter how many 12-step programs, no matter how many Sexaholics Anonymous, no matter how much therapy you get, the issue never lies with a change of behavior. The change must come into the heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. It has to start there. Our affections must be overhauled and changed to experience the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit and that by the asking in total and complete surrender to this area will there ever be true change. Now, I'm not saying uh, those other things are bad, the therapy and all of those. They, they can be very helpful. But what I am saying is that those things are worthless without a change of one's heart in Christ. Adultery begins in the heart. And that is why the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive, every thought captive to obey Christ. That's why when we deal with people's sins in our lives, we don't tell them what to do first. We tell them the gospel and what to believe first about who God is and what Jesus has done for them, how Jesus has overcome their sin and how to appropriate the promises of God in Christ into their lives. The Holy Spirit works in a powerful way when you and I just explain the simple gospel to that person's need and counsel them with the word of God. You see, Jesus is the word. He is the logos. He is the law manifested in the flesh. Jesus was there on Mount Sinai. He was there on Mount Sinai when he delivered the law and the Ten Commandments to Moses there in Exodus chapter 20. 
He was there when he delivered the law of God and ordinances to Moses at the entrance of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And the purpose of the law was to leave us without excuses that we cannot by our own efforts, by our own goodness, by our own self-propelled achievements ever be in right standing with God. The purpose of the law was for us to see how sinful we are and how righteous God is and that we have no excuse for our sins. We are sinners because of our condition. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world will become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So what do you liken the law to? Well, picture an x-ray machine. If I have something wrong within me, my, my mother has breast cancer. She, she has a mammogram every year. She takes one every year. She went in. The mammogram showed her that she has cancer. Is there anything at that point that the x-ray machine can do for her? Is it, the, is it the mammograms machine's fault that revealed her cancer? No, it did its job. The x-ray machine did its job. It exposed the problem. The law of God is like that x-ray machine. It is there to expose. But apart from that, there's nothing that we can do. There's nothing the law can do for us at that point to make us righteous before God. Nothing, absolutely nothing. So the purpose of the law... The purpose of that x-ray machine then for my mother is to drive her to a doctor that will heal her. The law is there to drive us to a savior so that we can be healed and saved. As Pastor Chuck Smith once wrote, it was pride that turned an angel into a devil. And that's the, that's the problem. We have to humble ourselves. You see, the Pharisees took the law and they made it about outward appearances here in the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom manifesto. But they also twisted it to make themselves look more righteous than they appeared. They didn't fear God, but rather desired to have power over the people through their position. They had more of a fear of man than a fear of God. And that's what religion does. Religion makes us all about ourselves and how we achieve more than others in our life with God. I'm better than you type of thing. It gives us a sense of superiority over others. And we compare our righteousness with others instead of God's righteousness, which gives us a sense of a leg up on everyone else. Religion leads to pride. Whereby we are the ones to be exalted. We are the ones to be made famous. Beware of comparing yourselves with others as a way of making yourself feel better. And I'm so glad Kirk said what he said, because we are all capable of doing what was done in this recent tragedy. We are all capable of that without the intervening of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. You see, when we prop ourselves up, it's a dangerous place to be. Oh yeah, seeing people do stupid things, watching TikTok videos and, and, and watching people make fools of themselves on Facebook 
gives you a sense of, boy, I'm sure glad I'm not like them. But the reality is, you are that dumb, and so am I. But when you watch those things, people make fools of themselves. How does God feel about those people? Well, he loves them enough that he died for them. So instead of joining in with your friends on how stupid someone acts, maybe take time to pray for them and ask Jesus to open their hearts to them. So Jesus kicks off this section of the Sermon on the Mount with this shocking statement. Verse 20, if you want to look there, he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven might drop. When Jesus spoke this word, when he spoke this word, this no doubt really must have disturbed the disciples because to them, there was no one more righteous than the Pharisees. The Pharisees Pharisees would be classified as the poster boys for righteousness. If you wanted to know what righteousness looked like, you would find a Pharisee and you would observe how externally they kept all of the laws of God. Externally, they kept the traditions of past rabbis. Externally, they were meticulous in outward obedience, such as straining out their wine just in case a gnat would get in there and they would swallow that gnat's blood. Jesus addresses that in the scriptures as well. Externally, they were the all-star team of righteousness. And the disciples thought, if anyone deserves to get into heaven and spend eternity with God, boy, it's these guys. But by this statement, Jesus goes on to explain that mere outward appearance of righteousness does not qualify someone for heaven. In fact, Jesus said that our righteousness has to exceed that of of the Pharisees. Jesus will begin to show in subsequent verses that it does not begin with behavior outwardly, but a change of heart inwardly. You can have all the appearances on your social media accounts that you are righteous outwardly, that you look good, that you've got it all together. You can set that filter on your profile picture. You can show people how funny, great, attractive you are, but you can't fool God. That is just simply a veneer. But inwardly, you could be in pain and the loneliest person in the world, not feeling like you measure up. Furthermore, Jesus explains that the law requires more than what the disciples of the Pharisees thought it did. That it requires perfection in thought, word, and deed. And Jesus dispels the myth in subsequent verses that the law could never make anyone righteous, that it was impossible for anyone to be in right standing with God or acceptance with God by simply trying to obey all of the commandments. Between the years of 1955 to 1974, the state of Montana had what was a law that was called reasonable and prudent speed law. You see, there were no speed limit signs on the highways in Montana at that time. So it was up to the discretion of the highway patrol officer what determined who was speeding and who wasn't. That it it wasn't until a guy by the name of Rudy Stanko 
uh, was ticketed for traveling 80 miles an hour on Highway 200. He disputed the charge in court and in a four to three ruling reversed the district court's judgment. It's called the reasonable and prudent clause vague on the grounds that it impermissibly uh, delegates basic policy matters to policemen, judges, and juries for resolution. There were other cases that landed in the courts as well there in Montana. And people driving in, in excess of 100 miles an hour on the, on the highways. What this landmark decision caused was legislation to, to uh, uh, establish speed limit signs. And those speed limit signs showed how reckless people were driving. The law of God acts in the same way. The law of God acts as a speed limit sign that says you are out of control based on God's standards. So Jesus makes this path to heaven through the law an impossible task so that he could reveal the kind of righteousness that Jesus requires, accepts, and even delights in. That is righteousness given by faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, you heard that right. God hates it when we try to please him on the basis of our own efforts. But he is very pleased when we put our faith and trust and accept by faith what Jesus Christ has done for us on Calvary's cross. In fact, it says in the book of Hebrews that it is without faith, it is impossible to please him. That he who believes in God must come to him as God and believes that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The kind of righteousness that God accepts and is pleased with is righteousness that's given as a gift by Jesus Christ. And it must be received and not earned. What if Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon, walked up to you and said, Hey, I care about you and your family. I just wanted to bless you with a state-of-the-art, brand-new home with all the latest appliances. Here, I wanted to give you a corporate card to Amazon.com so that you can buy whatever you want for your new house. Now, that sounds amazing. And Bezos wants to do it out of the goodness of his heart. But then you look at him and say, you know, Jeff, I really appreciate that. I couldn't accept, I, you know, I couldn't really accept this. Just let me give you a little something for it, you know, and you pull out a couple hundred bucks and you hand it to him. Well, that's going to be an insult to him. He made $500 in the last millisecond. What's that going to do? That's not going to please him. What pleases Bezos is when you just receive what he's given you. And it's the same way with Christ. He just wants you to receive. Now, that doesn't mean just at the point of salvation. That means every single day that you walk with Jesus. So when Jesus travels down this path of the law, you will hear him say, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And in that day, the Pharisees spoke on other people's authority. Rabbi so-and-so said this about this particular law. Rabbi so-and-so says this about this particular tradition. These prominent religious leaders had no power because they missed the whole point of the law, just like many do to this day. And you'll hear people say, well, I'm a good person. I'm nice to people. I help people out. I pay my taxes. But they miss that the law is impossible to keep before God. But Jesus was speaking on his own authority. The only person that he quoted from was himself. And he himself is the authority. 
because he himself is the law. Now, if you try and establish your own standing in relationship with God based on your own good works and law keeping, one of two things is going to happen. One, you will become puffed up, prideful and arrogant, and you'll develop a false sense of superiority over others because you'll feel that you have cornered the market on truth and you will set the standards on others that will be impossible for them to meet. You will be right in your own eyes only and others will be repelled by you and you will be alone. The second thing is this. The other scenario is this, is that you'll feel so discouraged and defeated that you can't measure up to God's standards. You will feel a constant fear of anxiety and incoming doom and judgment. You will have no joy because your focus is constantly on your performance and your sin. You're constantly desperate to find a way to please God, but no matter where you turn, you hit a brick wall. Those are the two scenarios. However, there is a better way that God accomplished for us. It's the gospel. You see, when I examine the cross and what Jesus really accomplished for me, it wipes out any pride or arrogance that I have. I stop laying trips on others because I know I myself don't measure up. It puts me in a state of humility, thankfulness, and joy. And then on the other side, I'm no longer discouraged by my performance because Jesus already took me as an utter and complete failure. And he loves me and accepts me. He took on all my failures, past, present, and future. Therefore, now I operate out of a sense of what Christ has done for me, not out of what I have to do for him. And my life becomes a get to, not a got to. Now the focus of our passage this morning. Thank you. You have heard that it was said, verse 27, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now Jesus is touching on the seventh commandment, which says you shall not commit adultery. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Adultery is simply a sexual relationship outside of the marriage. And it's amazing to me that I even have to clarify this. But in this culture, you have to clarify this. It is wrong to have relations with somebody else besides your spouse. It's wrong. It's sin. There are many who would be standing there listening to Jesus, feeling justified by their actions. Oh, cool, Jesus, I've been faithful to my wife or husband. I've never been with another woman or a man. I am righteous before God. Praise the Lord. But Jesus drops a bomb. He says that if you look upon a woman with lust, you've now become a law breaker. You and I deserve judgment because God's law demands total purity of heart. In other words, the law demands that I don't have to be engaged in the physical act But when I fuel my desires in the mind and heart, I have, in essence, committed adultery in my heart. It is possible to look moral outwardly, but inwardly, it's possible to fuel lust like throwing gasoline on a spark. So what happens? When the gas hits the spark, a fire begins to blaze. That fire grows until it eventually destroys everything in its path. 
In fact, James puts it this way in James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say that when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Second Samuel uh, chapter 11, verse 1 says, It happened in the spring of that year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, why do I read that passage? Because it gives us an example that instead of going to war and defending the nation Israel, David chose to stay behind and not engage in the battle. He woke up one day. He took a walk on the roof of his palace. And he looked longingly at a woman bathing named Bathsheba. He longingly looked at her and he fueled his desire for her where eventually he had relations with her, got her pregnant and then murdered her husband and tried to cover it up. But God didn't let it go on discipline because David was at home, not engaged in warfare. He allowed himself to be put in a compromised position and his kingdom was never the same since. To many, he was the laughingstock of Israel. And there was disruption in his house from that moment on until the day he died. God, oh, God forgave him, yes. But the repercussions of his sin were irreparable. Men don't stop engaging in the battle for the kingdom of God. Continue in the fight. Don't rest on your laurels. Keep going on the front lines, taking ground spiritually as the spirit will lead you. Don't rest on your laurels as David did. He got in trouble because he wasn't engaged where he needed to be. The Bible commands us to occupy until Christ comes. Men, invest in someone. Pour your life out for service to the Lord. Invest in your family. Don't waste time playing video games, watching Netflix, social media, binge watching shows, looking at pornography. Instead, engage in the war that is around us because the battle has already been won by Jesus Christ. Don't linger. Devote yourself to reading and studying the scriptures, which will make you wise for salvation and strengthen you. Intentionally fellowship with other believers to strengthen you and help you in your walk. Redeem the time, the Bible says, until the Lord uh, Jesus comes back, which will be today. Uh, come on, that was funny. It could be. I don't know. I hope it is. No, this is not Harold Camping's cousin. Uh, and for goodness sake, when you're at the grocery store and you see that beautiful female form, down that aisle, don't go down the same aisle as her. Even though there's nothing down that aisle that you need. Turn your thoughts to Christ. And keep going. And ladies, yes, I am an equal opportunity offender. Our culture wants equality, right? 
Well, here you go. Ladies, if you feel that your emotional needs aren't being met by your husband and you start comparing your husband to that other guy that looks well put together, he makes you laugh, he's attentive to you, do not fan fan those emotional flames. There is nothing that that guy can do for you. And you'll be putting yourself in a compromised position. Yes, he's sensitive. Yes, he's funny. Yes, he has leadership qualities that you desire. But those things don't come from him. And the reality is they don't fully come from your husband either. They come from Jesus. And you too will be like David idling away on the top of the rooftop instead of being the princess warrior for Christ that you were designed to be. Turn those thoughts to Christ, the one who meets all of your needs, who attends to your every thought and treats you like his beloved daughter. So this battle we must fight internally that Jesus addresses here is not just externally. So adultery doesn't just happen. It begins in the heart. When I'm focused on Jesus and all that he has done for me, there is joy, there is strength, and there is peace. And then my heart gives, uh, there is joy and peace. And then my heart will give birth to an immoral thought. It's when I begin to fuel or feed those thoughts, when I begin to entertain certain situations, that those desires begin to grow. When that desire grows, it will give birth to sin, which in the end will destroy me and those around me. I spend my time trying to get back at that point in a right relationship with God. Now I am in a right relationship with him when it concerns my salvation. He's forgiven me, but I'm not in fellowship with him and I'm not walking in purity and victory. The way that I get back is simply through believing the gospel. And the reason that desire is there in the first place is because you have a deep emotional need. You have a need there that can only be met by Jesus. The heart is the battleground of my emotions. It's the seat of my being whereby my desires flow. Now, you and I were made by God to experience passion. To experience ecstasy. God created sex to be enjoyed and to produce beautiful children. But sex is like a fireplace. Inside that fireplace, it can be warm, comforting, and inviting. But outside of it, boy, it can destroy everything and do tons of damage. So how does Jesus tell us to deal with this area of adultery within the heart? What is the proper response? How do we deal with the sin that so easily rises up in this area? He says this in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So when Jesus says that uh, when you lust, what does he mean when he says you should gouge your eye out? If you sin with your hands, does he literally mean cut your hand off? If that were the case, then we would all be blind and we would all be limbless. 
And you know what? Besides, if sin starts in the heart, it wouldn't matter if we were blind because you, a blind man can still lust. No, Jesus is not teaching that we should practice self-mutilation when we sin. The point he is driving at here is he's speaking in hyperbolic language. He's saying that sin is serious. It is destructive. It leaves damage in its wake and can mar who you really are as an image bearer of God, especially the sin of lust. We must deal with sin in the severest possible terms. You don't coddle cancer. You don't manage cancer. You cut it out. You cut it out completely so that you can heal and be whole. And what Jesus is saying is that you don't take lightly, but you deal with lust in a dramatic way. So why is the sin of lust and sexual immorality different than other kinds of sins? It compromises one's very being. Although the repercussions of every sin are serious, the sexual sin is unique in that it is the only sin where you sin against yourself. Solomon shed further light on this when he said, Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding, but he who does so destroys his own soul. That's Proverbs 6.32. And because we are made in the image of a triune God, we are comprised of three parts as well, body, soul, and spirit. The body relates to the physical world. The soul is one's essence, your essence, your personality, and it relates to people. The spirit relates to God and will live eternally. Thus, each time you engage in an immoral activity, part of your soul gets damaged. Part of my soul gets damaged. The tragedy then is that one who continues to live in promiscuity becomes less and less of a person and a piece of his or her soul is stripped away with each encounter. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that lust is so serious, it's the one sin that you sin against yourself. So let me say this as a means of grace. I'm going to encourage you now, if you have fallen in this area, let me say this. If you have entertained lust, if you have acted on it, if you indulged in it, let me tell you something, brother and sister. God can restore your soul. You can be made pure again. I read an article of a, of a former pornographic actress in the Christian Post where she said that when she got saved, God transformed her entire sexuality. She ended up marrying a godly man. And she said that that night on her honeymoon, she was so nervous she felt like a virgin. That's what God can do. He can restore you. He can restore the damage that you've caused. You can have fellowship with God through the precious blood of Jesus. No, you are not far gone. You are near to Christ who desires to make you new. He can restore your sexuality. And yes, there is grace for you. And God is waiting to restore all of the brokenness that was caused in your life. He's waiting to turn you into a pure, joyful child of God, free to walk in his presence without spot or blemish. That's his desire for you, that you simply surrender. That's his desire for you, that you simply surrender your sexuality, your sin to him, and he will transform you into a new creature in Christ. I'm not just talking to 
non-Christians here, people who aren't believers, I'm also talking to you who follow Jesus. He loves you. He's passionate about you. In fact, the shepherd's psalm, Psalm 23, David says, He restores my soul. He restores my being. He restores my essence. He restores my purity. And he leads me into paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And speaking to the nation of Israel in Joel 2, 25 and 26, and I believe that this applies to us. I will restore to you all the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord, your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. My people shall never again be put to shame. In Acts 3, Peter says, Repent therefore and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come. God desires refreshing, refreshment for your soul. J. Stuart Holden tells of an old Scottish uh, mansion close to where he had his little summer home. The walls of one room were filled with sketches made by distinguished artists. The practice began after the a pitcher of soda water was accidentally spilled on a freshly decorated wall and left an ugly, ugly stain. At the time, the noted artist Lord Landseer was a guest in the house. And one day, when the family went into the moors, he stayed behind with a few masterful strokes of a piece of charcoal, and he turned that ugly spot, and it became the outline of a beautiful waterfall bordered by trees and wildlife. He turned that disfigured wall into one of his most successful depictions of the Highland life. Brothers and sisters, the stain that has been left by your sexual immorality, my sexual immorality, God wants to turn it into beauty. So why is Jesus here in this passage deal with sin so so severely? Jesus is not talking literally of plucking your eye out, your hand, but he's just trying to show you and me, because to every one of us, that the thought of plucking out our right eye is just flat out disgusting and repulsive. And we shudder at the thought of taking something and just gouging our eye out. Or it gives me chills of just thinking of taking a bandsaw to my arm. That's just gross. But Jesus, by this deliberately speaking of things that are so disgusting to us, is seeking to show us the importance of entering the kingdom. That's his desire. More important than the whole body, more important than having all the members of my body intact, that I enter into the kingdom of of God with Jesus. And that's his desire. And I should not be concerned with what sacrifice I may make in a temporal way. Because I mean, seeking the eternal kingdom of heaven. (coughs) Excuse me. Now I hear what you're saying, Brett, but I don't understand how to get there. I'm struggling. Struggling in this area. For some of you, there's a component to your past where you've experienced trauma. And by engaging in lust through the mind and the heart, 
and even acting on it, you're seeking to gain control over your trauma. This has been written in scientific literature for a long time. And I don't really like the term addiction. I prefer the term compulsive comfort seeking. You so desire to gain comfort and peace. The key is not trying to stop your behavior. The key is believing the gospel. Believing God and his word and his great love and mercy toward you. And acting on that by faith. When I was 12 years old, my stepfather committed suicide. Leaving my mom with an unknown debt of up to, I think it was a million dollars. Shortly after she, I think it was six or so months after, I can't remember, she started dating a man and she decided it would all be great to move in with him and his family. Talk about confused. I was railing. I was so lost. I was so angry. I remember the son of my mother's boyfriend found a pornographic tape. And this was back in the days of beta cassette tapes. For those of you who are old enough to know what I'm talking about. Uh, To see those pictures gave me a false sense of comfort, security, and it filled a void in my heart. Uh, I was saved about three years later. God transformed my life. However, the lust was still there. It wasn't until a few few years later that I heard a a message through the book of Ephesians on, on identity in Christ and who I really was and how all my needs were met in him. And I began to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. And I began learning the true freedom that Jesus really bought for me. I began to exercise faith in his love for me. And I felt satisfied by him. Now, does it mean that I don't struggle with lust anymore? If I were to be honest, no. I mean, any man worth his salt who sees the female form. That's just, that's just part of who we are as, as, as the old flesh hangs on. But we learn to live less and less by the lies of the flesh and live by the truth of Scripture. We are worth a great deal to Jesus. So much so that he died for us. That we are of great value to him. That we are secure in him. Because of his blood. We learn to appropriate the security and the comfort and the joy that he affords us. We learn to believe that. Brothers and sisters, you have a savior who took your lust to Calvary with him. Romans 8 says that he took all of your sins in his body on the tree. And in that, he gave you a greater ecstasy a fellowship with god he gave you his presence through the holy spirit you don't have to go back to that old way anymore the cross of christ affords you the power to take those thoughts and lay them down to experience his love and grace on your life walk in the truth that your lust has been dealt with and that you are free did you hear that you are free you're free start acting like a free person 
He has given you the comfort of his spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your grace, your mercy, your love. We thank you, Lord, that you... We, we live in this crazy culture and it's in our face. But yet, Lord, you're there for us, your church. And we can rest. I pray for any brothers and sisters who are struggling with condemnation over this area of lust. Break that chain apart, Lord. If I could use it in charismatic terms. Break those chains that they are not in chains, that they have been set free by the blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord. Fill us all. In Jesus' name, amen.